You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to another episode of Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and today I'm bringing you a podcast that's being jointly released by Simulcast and our great friends at Debrief to Learn. And this is a podcast that Adam Cheng and I recorded at my recent visit to his shop in Calgary in Canada, and it's about faculty development. Now, if you've already heard it over on Debrief to Learn, you probably don't listen, need to listen to it again, but otherwise, I uh, hope you enjoy it. The people you're going to hear talking today are Dawn Taylor-Peterson, who's the Director of Simulation Faculty Development and Training at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. You're going to hear me. You're going to hear Ryan Bridges, who's a scientist at the Wilson Centre at the University of Toronto and also research director at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. And of course, you're going to hear Adam Cheng, who actually hosts this discussion. And anyone who's interested in simulation at all knows Adam. He's a PEDS emergency physician, the director of research and development at Kids Sim Simulation Program at Alberta Children's Hospital. So take it away, Adam, for a great discussion on faculty development. So we thought we would spend the time today chatting about a topic that is near and dear to all of our hearts, and that's the topic of faculty development. Um, Both Don and Vic uh, run programs with a very heavy focus on developing their simulation educators. And so um, I thought we'd spend the first part of our discussion uh, maybe unpacking that a bit and understanding how you are able to achieve excellence in faculty development. So Don, maybe if you could start by sharing with, with us your thoughts on, you know, why, why did your program decide to have such a heavy focus on faculty development for simulation educators? I think there are two main reasons that we decided to focus on faculty development, and they are consistency and sustainability. We noticed fairly early on in our program that a lot of the simulations that were being delivered were inconsistently delivered and the debriefings might not have been as productive as they could have been, primarily because uh, a lot of our facilitators weren't trained. And in creating a faculty development program that focuses purely on uh, quality and meaningful takeaways, we've been able to ensure consistency and implementation of our simulation and in the debriefing so that all of our learners come away with something meaningful for their practice. As far as sustainability, we are a fairly large program. We had over 24,000 learner hours of simulation last year. We serve uh, people in the health system and also on the campus, and we recognize that our team can't do it all. So in order, in order to create a sustainable model for simulation uh, in our institution, we are really focusing on a train-the-trainer model where faculty and staff can come through our program and learn the basics of facilitating and implementing simulation um, that produces quality discussions for our learners. Great. That sounds like a really robust uh, program. I wonder, Vic, if you, have you taken a similar approach to faculty development at your own institution? Uh, look, I think Dawn's program is really a sort of gold standard, and that's got something to do with the fact that uh, it is a big program. It's very impressive. And I guess, though, as she says, it brings with it that challenge of consistency. I think we've got some similar things, but some different things. I think one of our challenges was we actually just don't have a very big sim service in terms of dedicated staff. So for us, faculty development was as much about 
helping to engage the other educators in the institution who'd done variable amounts of simulation. And the way that we approached that was certainly to run some workshops, looking at some skills, but our not-so-hidden agenda with that was to try and bring together educators from different professions and different departments and to not just go through the skills acquisition process but also to share some of their challenges as educators and to think hard about how to pull SIM into their programs rather than saying, come here, SIM will solve all your stuff and come and join us. So for us, this was kind of multi-pronged. Um, I don't think we are as organised as Dawn describes and in her paper it's really impressive the kind of tiers that they go through. I think we're still at the stage of trying to get people together. So at the hospital, we've definitely got those kind of limitations of uh, people haven't got much time, they'd like to do more, but they've got other roles. In terms of faculty development for the folks who come and help us with the medical student program, we've got a bit more time and I guess we get to do a little bit more of the peer coaching and peer feedback and probably more of our faculty development is built on that kind of uh, cheap and easy, but I think actually quite effective model of trying to help people get together in that regard. So both of you speak about bringing together educators from different areas of the hospital to learn to become simulation educators within a program of faculty development. Um, I wonder if you can speak to some of the downstream effects of that, like does it help to break down barriers or silos within an institution, and what sort of effects have you seen on the culture within your institution from running faculty development in this fashion? That's a really interesting question, Adam. I think one of the things we've seen in bringing together faculty and staff from across the campus and in our practitioners and staff in the health system is that it creates a community where everyone recognizes the value that the other brings to the table. We get to talk a lot about modeling interprofessional behavior, about treating each other with respect, about being curious, and all of those things that we talk about in our courses, we have seen that transfer out into the units and into the courses that the faculty teach on campus. And our hope is that all of those that come to our courses will be modeling that for their peers right. and for their students as well. Uh, like you, I hope so. I don't have a whole lot of measures of whether that's really happened. I think what I do have is I know that these are the people that also help us get a foot in the door in terms of running in situ simulations who are also then connected with the simulation service to achieve the kind of goals that we want to as well as them. Uh, I think it's hard to tell how people change their educational practice as a result other than through resource-intensive methods that I guess uh, at the moment we, we haven't been able to do. But you certainly get a nice feeling from those people and I think they also become your ambassadors throughout the institution in terms of selling the benefits of how SIM can help a program or not um, or how it can help a clinical service. And I think that's probably one of the things that we rely on for those processes. That's great. You know, reflecting on faculty development, I don't think it's difficult to convince the average person or simulation administrator that it's important to do faculty development, uh, but it is resource intensive. Uh, it takes time, it takes money. Maybe if each of you could share with me what strategies you've used in your faculty development efforts and which ones, what strategies have worked the best for you. I think for us, one of the strategies we've used is to try to offer our courses on a varying basis and a rotating schedule to try to meet the needs of the scheduling of all the different faculty and staff that come to our programs. In other words, we don't just offer on a Monday afternoon every, you know, every single course one day of the week at a certain time of day. We try to vary the time of day. We try to vary the day of the week. 
Uh, we try to do some of our workshops are five hours. Some of them are all day. Some of them are two hours. And so we try to vary things such that people can get to us when it's most convenient for them. I think probably we have got less maturation in that regard. So we kind of run workshops when we can, when it kind of fits in. Uh, we shy away a little bit from doing things, as I think you said earlier, Dawn, from just for a department because we really do believe in that cross-fertilisation. Probably the thing we haven't spoken about yet that I think we probably have got a bit more advanced in is having a sort of vertically integrated model of faculty development where we've got people who are seeing this as a big part of their career. So just like you have here, we have a simulation fellow, uh, one at the university, one based at the hospital. We've got an education registrar, and this year we've had four students who do eight-week electives in simulation education. And I think that's been really good for all of us because we've been forced to kind of try and deconstruct a little bit about what we do with these people who are spending a bit more time with us than a workshop. So for me, that's been a useful strategy. And then the uh, other thing, obviously, sort of related to doing this podcasting is that, as you say, the resource intensiveness, some of it is about building resources. And we found that rather than trying to do things over and over again, we uh, one of the things that we use Simulcast for is to refer people to episodes. And if you've interviewed Walter Epic on debriefing or if you've done a journal club on faculty development with Taylor Peterson and colleagues, uh, you know, they're great resources for us to send our learners back to listen to. So I guess we try and get a little bit of double bang for buck um, as well as also, as you know, one of the things we're trying to do at Simulcast is connect those educators with researchers like Ryan and really think, well, how do we go about digesting some of this simulation literature when we're not every day leafing through the journals or understanding the methods that uh, folks are using? We're trying to apply our very simplistic kind of randomised control trial strategies to thinking about how to do good simulation. So I guess for me, that's been the strategies. That's actually a beautiful segue into a discussion of faculty development for researchers. Uh, Ryan's a scientist and um, has published quite a bit on on simulation as an educational tool. Uh, Ryan, you know, in your career thus far, maybe if you can speak a little bit about some of the challenges that you've encountered in, in, in developing research skills amongst your trainees, uh, specifically related to the application of simulation as a research tool. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I think one of the biggest ones has been that people just don't think that they need development. And the reason is that they come from a clinical world where they've been taught all of these strategies, how to identify evidence, appraise that evidence, and apply it to their practice. And there's an assumption that you can do that just as easily with any other type of literature, in our case, simulation and educational evidence. And unfortunately, it's not that simple. Uh, and so we, we try to help people develop an awareness, and that's been a big challenge, that you do not have these skills, they don't directly apply in the same way that you have found them to apply in your previous work or in the clinical world. So that's really one of our first challenges is getting people through the door to realize this is a skill set that does need to be developed. And I think that message actually is probably generalizable to simulation educators as well. Like we see a lot of people come in who are fantastic teachers or educators in the clinical realm, but there are specific aspects of simulation-based education that require new skills, similar to using simulation as a research tool or as the environment to answer clinical questions. There are specific skills that need to be taught and learned. So I love that you brought that point up. Uh, within your own program, you know, what sort of strategies have you used to help to train the next generation of simulation researchers? So we often start relatively informally. Uh, so set a meeting, usually one-on-one. -on -one. And I really just try to get at what their passion is. 
So not what you're being told to research, not what the priority is in uh, the Sim Center that you've become aligned with, but what is your passion and interest as an educator that you'd like to do some research on? From that, we then develop a focused reading list for them. And their doing and making time to engage in that reading is the first battle. And we found that really, it's probably realistic as educators or, or as mentors of, of uh, burgeoning scientists or researchers to expect about 25% of people to come back and have done the readings. That's a win if we can get one in four. And then from there, we have very focused uh, strategies or more formal strategies, I should say. So we have courses on research literacy uh, in simulation. So the jargon you're going to encounter, uh, what's typical, what's not, uh, what's similar to what you've seen in the clinical uh, journals. Uh, and we also are, of course, there's master's programs and really formal training, and not everyone wants to engage to that level. So we have certificate programs in our Center for Faculty Development uh, called Stepping Stones, for example, where they are able to get a survey of the, the skills that they need to become researchers where they don't have the time to engage in a full-on project that a master's demands. That's one strategy. And then another, which we're just starting to develop, is getting over the need to be the PI on everything. And our system creates that, especially in, in the Department of Medicine where I am. Uh, you know, to get promoted, I have to have a first author paper. I have to have a first author paper. And not everyone can be that, can play that role. And so we're trying to educate, educate across the system that being a collaborator and enabling research and being an ambassador, as Vic was talking about, for research and, and ensuring that it can be done well in the system is, is a great role to play. And how do we recognize that role and value that role and, and ensure that we teach people to play that role well, as well as giving them skills if they want to go beyond that to be not just a co-investigator or collaborator, uh, which is extremely important, but a, uh, a PI, if that is their interest. So we're trying to target all these different roles and produce the skills and, and training required to enable people to play those roles. And I think awareness of, hey, I can be a collaborator and contribute effectively and importantly, I think that's something that we need our system to recognize. Right. I mean, I think you bring up a great point, and this is, the, uh, I, I think, bringing up the idea of having role models you know, because if you're in an environment where all of your models are always the PI or perhaps from an educator point of view, you know, your role models always have to be the lead debriefer. They always have to be the one in control. Of course, you might expect that that's the perception you have and you'll be training with. And so uh, I'm going to ask all of you to maybe share your thoughts on the importance of having mentors, particularly as it relates to faculty development. Ryan, I'll ask you last, you know, the importance of having good research mentors. And maybe I'll start with Vic or Don, if you can share with me your thoughts on how do mentors play a role in building and um, in training up the next generation of simulation educators. I think mentors play a really important role in training up the next generation of educators, there is a lot to be learned from someone who has more experience than you do. And a mentor uh, can help model, they can help brainstorm, they can connect you with other people who may be more, you know, have more expertise in a certain area than you. And so I think really partnering with someone who has maybe a similar passion that you have, or who is maybe very good in a, in a role, you know, I heard Ryan talk about roles and as he was thinking, talking about research role, I was thinking about roles in simulation. 
So you have the debriefer, you have the person who's running the mannequin, who's the scenario director, you may have the embedded simulation participant. So there are roles in simulation education as well. And I think really identifying what is your passion and what role do you really want to take on and finding a mentor who can help coach you through that role is really beneficial. Yeah, and just to comment on that, I think that was something that really came across in your paper is that people should think about different domains of simulation and have different uh, mentors and, and processes for getting there. Uh, obviously, I think that's important, and I think whatever we think we teach people, most of what they learn, it's just like our three-year-olds is what they see in front of them right. and what they see as being effective, and, and that's a very powerful hidden curriculum. My one worry with it is that um, as someone who kind of has some of these mentees that they kind of think because I do what I do it must be the way to do it and I think that's actually a bit of a worry and so I do spend a bit of time saying you know lots of other people do this differently I don't really know if it's right it's kind of worked for me so far so I think that is also a responsibility but the other thing I'd say about mentoring and the bit that maybe I'd try and do uh, that once upon a time I wouldn't have was back to what we were talking about which is training people in leadership and change management around embedding simulation. And I think that's something I feel, uh, again, is quite unquantifiable, but it's so important. And I think if the simulation fellows can't go back and create things in whatever institution they go to, it doesn't matter how good their debriefing is, how good their scenario writing is, if they can't manage that change and think about their negotiation within the institution, then I kind of probably haven't done my job. Great comments, Vic. I think, um, you know, your, your comments about, having one primary mentor and then having the trainees think, oh, this is how I need to be. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm like this person, then that would be the be all end all. I think a further to that one thing that's, that I've found really helpful within my own career is having mentors outside the walls of my own institution. You don't need to have many, maybe one or two, uh, but what that allows you to do is to be able to see how things are done differently and, and mentors from different institutions have different perspectives. And that's been really enriching for me personally. So Ryan, what are your thoughts around that as it relates to research? I would echo all of these as being important strategies. Uh, and you know, that, that mentor who has more experience, I learned not to say older, who has more experience, (laughs) (laughs) uh, and, and can guide you through the system is very key. Another thing I've learned though, is that often those individuals are busy. Uh, and so getting their time, it, it is at a premium. And, and so what we've done at the Wilson Center uh, in that community is under, starting to understand that we can be mentors to each other as peers. So you see that things can be done differently and that's okay. Uh, you can vent and just kind of de- uh, decompress around some of the issues and the pressures that you're feeling from your system because you all know it and are living it each day. Uh, I think that that has been incredibly helpful. I think in research, sometimes you feel like you have to compete with each other. Oh, well, we're going for the same grant. I shouldn't talk to you too much or whatever it may be. There is that competition. But I found that we've, while we're still doing that, we are enabling each other through those processes and we celebrate each other's wins, even though that means one of us lost, it still means one of us won. Uh, and, And so that peer mentorship has become an intangible that I think is really important. We have a wonderful discussion um, you know, before we close, uh, I'm thinking, you know, it may be really enlightening if each of you could share with me maybe one piece of advice that you would give someone who's looking to start building a faculty development program within their institution, specifically targeted either at, targeted at either simulation educators or researchers. So what would one piece of golden advice be for those folks? 
I think my piece of advice would be to say to look at what your needs are. And once you've identified that need, start small. So once you see the need, think of a, maybe it's a three-hour workshop you might deliver to help address that need. Offer it, get feedback on it, refine it, and continue to offer it and draw people in and help establish your value. And then you can expand your program. I think oftentimes people want to try to offer too many things at one time. So I would say start small. Great. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same as my advice for giving talks. Like have a few key objectives uh, and then really connect with your audience, which is find out where they're at. And just as you said, try and make sure there's an end point to this. I think it's easy to go to a workshop or a course and go, hey, now I can debrief. But I think the idea of saying, and this is where I'm going to be using these skills. And maybe that does involve just partnering with a small group of people initially. And Ryan, you have the last word. Yeah. And just thinking about the needs of your, your users and who you're trying to develop, uh, understanding what the system pressures are that are causing them the most anxiety. Uh, and then using that to formulate your objectives and to help either shift those anxieties and say, actually, you don't have to worry that so much about it or address those head on. I think uh, th these pressures are what t keep people up at night. And if we don't get them to talk about them and try to address those, then we're really not going to be developing them in the right direction. Wonderful. Well, thank you to all three of you for sharing your wisdom and your experience with us today. We do hope that uh, um, that this discussion will help to advance simulation programs in their efforts to develop robust faculty development programs. So we'll see you again on Debrief to Learn.